This is CNN Breaking News. I'm Allison Kosick in New York. We begin this hour with a series of stunning developments in Elon Musk's ongoing takeover bid for Twitter. The billionaire CEO announcing just hours ago that the $44 billion deal to take Twitter private is now on hold, and then tweeting hours later that he's not ready to walk away just yet. Twitter shareholders reacting negatively to the news. Shares initially fell more than 20%. They have since bounced back a bit. They're currently down about 13%. So, of course, many questions as the story develops, including what is Musk's endgame here? And is he angling for a better price during this volatile time for tech? I want to bring in uh, Rahel Solomon. She uh, is going to talk more about this for us. Great to see you, Rahel. So, you know, we know that Elon Musk has been negotiating this Twitter deal on Twitter since the beginning, but it really makes you wonder if the SEC should be stepping in at this point because it's really investors being tossed about here. So many questions, Allison. Good to be with you. Yes. In the words of one analyst, this is a circus show that is turning into a Friday the 13th horror show. Let's start with 6 a.m. this morning. This is when the story sort of all began. That's when Elon Musk tweeted, as you pointed out, that, yes, the Twitter deal was temporarily on hold, pending detail supporting calculation that spam fake accounts do indeed represent less than 5% of users. Well, that tweet sent pre-market shares of Twitter plunging. Short time later, at about 8 a.m., just before 8, he tweeted perhaps a clarification that he was still committed to the acquisition. Look, we do know that Elon Musk has said from the beginning when he announced his interest in Twitter that he wanted to fix Twitter and also rid the company of spam bots. So if you are to believe Musk at his word, perhaps the news that Reuters article suggesting that it's not as big of an issue as he initially expected. When I asked Dan Ives, an analyst who covers Twitter very closely about that, he said, That's like saying the dog ate your homework. He wasn't buying it. But look, in any event, investors and the market's now trying to game out and figure out, was this a ploy to perhaps renegotiate at a lower price? We know his offer was 54.20. Or is this really an excuse for him to walk away? So many questions. Yeah, so he tweeted he's committed to this deal, but investors at least... A bunch of investors are still committed to selling this stock. I mean, investors really getting hit with this, not just uh, with Twitter, but we are seeing actually shares of uh, Tesla um, in the green. Move on this. Exactly. So, yes. So as you pointed out, shares of Twitter plunged on this news. They then bounced back a little bit after we got that clarification or the second tweet. Look, when he announced his interest to buy Twitter, I want to show you a year to date chart of Twitter and you can sort of see the price action. But when Elon Musk announced his bid to buy Twitter, you saw shares pop. That was in April there. Uh, And then when Twitter's board accepted the offer, it popped to 51.70. And as you can see, as of yesterday, it was closing at 45.09. So nowhere near the 54.20. Uh, which was his offer. And he did say in his SEC filing that he knew he was buying it at a premium. But to your point, tech has been getting quite a beating as of late. And Twitter shares are now closer to $45. So does 54.20 still seem like a great deal, a great price or valuation for Elon Musk? Unclear. Uh, What we can see, however, is that Tesla... Tesla owners, Tesla shareholders seem to like this news. Those shares are up about 7% pre-market. And from the beginning, Allison, as you know, uh, Tesla
Tesla investors were never really thrilled about this deal to begin with. For one reason, because Elon Musk would likely have to leverage some of his shares in order to pull off this deal, but also because did running Twitter, would running Twitter distract Elon Musk from running Tesla? Of course, he is the visionary founder of the company. And so uh, Tesla owners were never really crazy about this deal to begin with. And so perhaps Twitter's loss is Tesla shareholders gain. Something tells me we'll all be watching Twitter, at least Elon Musk's account today. Uh, Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. Let's bring in Chief Media Correspondent Brian Stelter to kind of dissect this tweet, Brian. Uh, you know, what's your take on this calculation in the first tweet, you know, him saying that fake accounts and bots make up less than 5% of users? Yeah, f- first of all, t- bots and, and spam, uh, fake accounts are a plague on Twitter. They have been for years. And to suggest that they're just a small portion of the total user base, give me a break. Elon Musk must know better than that. He's on the site. He sees the problem. He sees the pollution when he uses the site. So this has all the trappings of, uh, of, nego- of, nego- of negotiation, of Musk trying to get a lower price, uh, trying to reprice this deal. And he very well may be able to do that. But whether the banks are on board, his finances are on board, is an open question. And then I think the other, the other question is, um, how much does he really want this? I think he is determined to, uh, to lead Twitter, to have his vision for Twitter be the future of Twitter. But it's more fun for him to have this deal be in the works and to spout off on Twitter and get everyone's attention. It's almost like it's more fun to be doing the deal than it is to actually own Twitter. You know what I mean? So I think we have to look to that breakup fee, a $1 billion breakup fee. That is what he would owe if he walks away. So he may be trying to get the price down without paying that $1 billion breakup fee. But I think that's what we have to eye now. Is he actually going to go through with this or is he going to pay that $1 billion, let the stock decline and then come back around with a a new bid for Twitter? Brian, what do you think are the political ramifications here if Musk walks away, particularly for Republicans, you know, who wanted to reinstate Donald Trump's account? Well, that's the thing, right? It's more fun for him to talk a big game on Twitter and say, I'm going to bring Donald Trump back and I think he's not the best candidate, but he shouldn't have been banned. It's like almost more fun for Musk to pretend to be CEO than it is to actually own it and then have to actually own the decisions you make and own the responsibility and the consequences. Uh, but what does it mean for Republican politicians? There has been uh, a surge of follower growth of, of new accounts coming into Twitter among conservatives in the U.S. because they believe Musk is going to take over Twitter. So already there's been a change in the Twitter user base with conservatives more interested in the platform. Donald Trump, of course, has not come back. He is still banned for now. Uh, whether he comes back and in what way, uh, it would be a question, I think, down, down the line in the months to come. But this would have consequences politically because we've already seen Twitter become more popular among conservatives, maybe a little less so among Democrats or liberals in the U.S. And, of course, this spans the entire world where, where the policies Musk would put in place, much more permissive content moderation, that would affect many different political environments environments around the world. Uh, So now I guess we just look at his Twitter account and see. I'd love to know what regulators of the SEC think about all this, though. They they, they must feel so uh, unequipped to deal with the likes of Musk right now. (laughs) Yeah, I, I really think regulators really need to step in and they have to be a lot faster about it. Right. I, you know, we shall see what happens today. Brian Stelter, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks. In Jerusalem, Israeli police have used batons to beat mourners during the funeral of the slain Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. Authorities were seen hitting several people carrying her coffin. The crowd was temporarily pushed back before it was allowed to proceed to a church. Atika Schubert is at Mount Zion Cemetery. Atika, I know there was an expectation here that an escalation in tensions could happen at her funeral. What are you learning? 
Well, we were there at the hospital when it happened, uh, and essentially the family, but mostly mourners, hundreds of mourners who showed up there, wanted to have a funeral procession walking the coffin out, but the Israeli police said no, that would not be allowed, fearing that it would escalate. Uh, when then the pallbearers tried to take the coffin out, Israeli riot police then charged them, moving into the hospital grounds uh, and at one point uh, targeting those pallbearers, nearly knocking the coffin to the ground. It was a dramatic scene. It was very tense. Um, there were tear gas and flash grenades thrown. Uh, it was certainly frightening for many of the mourners that were there. Uh, however, the family then took charge and said that they would simply drive the coffin to the church, not have a walking funeral procession. They, an agreement was reached with Israeli police who were then able to withdraw some of the riot police there. Uh, then they moved to the church and what we saw really in the procession here was quite stunning. Thousands of Palestinians coming out to show an outpouring of grief for Shireen Abu Akleh. And now we're here at the cemetery where her coffin is now being placed next to her parents at Mount Zion Cemetery, Allison. All right, Atika Schubert, thanks for all of your reporting. And now to the latest from Ukraine, where Russian troops are pulling back from the country's second largest city, Kharkiv, in the Northeast. These are pictures of three bridges destroyed around Kharkiv. It is believed Russians blew them up to stop advancing Ukrainian troops. Ukraine has been making steady gains there. On Snake Island, which has become symbolic of Ukrainian defiance, new video has emerged of a Russian helicopter being destroyed by a Ukrainian missile strike. Ukraine says it has destroyed multiple Russian assets on the island in recent weeks and that a Russian support ship is on fire and being towed away from the island. CNN has not been able to verify that claim. Russia is threatening Finland with retaliation after Finnish leaders gave their backing to NATO membership. Former President Dmitry Medvedev warning that Russia would seriously strengthen ground, naval and air defenses on its western flank. Russia may be icing out Finland, but lines of communications remain open with Germany. President Vladimir Putin speaking with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz today. According to the Kremlin, they discussed the situation in Ukraine and the evacuation of the Azovstal plant in Mariupol. Meantime, in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv, the first war crime trial is being held since the Russian invasion. A 21-year-old Russian soldier is accused of killing an unarmed civilian in February. Melissa Bell is in Kyiv for us. Melissa, so what are you expected to hear in court today? Well, this was just a preliminary hearing. The rest will come on Wednesday. Uh, Vadim Shishimarin, a 21-year-old Russian soldier, uh, was asked uh, to state his name and his age and so on in order to establish his identity. It is the very beginning of the trial, but an extraordinary trial, Alison, because what we're talking about is a trial for war crimes in a civilian court that is being held even as the war continues to rage on, as you were just saying, in the south and in the east of Ukraine. Now, of course, international justice is also uh, doing its thing. There have been dozens of teams, forensic teams on the ground here, the International Criminal Court, but also the UN Human Rights Council, uh, a dozen or so uh, international uh, teams have also been here. There will be investigations and uh, national jurisdictions holding their own trials. We're hearing from the country's prosecutor general. 
But this uh, was a Ukrainian trial of that uh, incident that took place in the very north of the country on the 28th of February, four days after the war began, when that unarmed civilian was killed on his bicycle, even as he was on his home, on his phone, not very far from his house. So just the beginning of what it seems will be a historic trial. Now, the woman who's in charge, the country, Ukraine's uh, general prosecutor, we managed to speak to her today to ask her about it. And she explained why it was so important that even as the war went on, even as the Ukrainian economy is on its knees, justice be done and the judiciary stay upright in order that this trial can take place in these extraordinary circumstances. Because she said it is about ensuring for the first time, given the technology that's here in Ukraine, given uh, the documenting of these war crimes, these alleged war crimes, even as they've happened, thanks to the technology, the presence of journalists, the fact that the whole world is watching, she wanted to use that in order to change the sense of impunity that soldiers have traditionally had during wartime. Have a listen. These proceedings now can save lives of our Ukrainian civilians on the south and eastern part of Ukraine because these perpetrators who are now fighting will see that we will find all of them. We will identify all of them and we will start to prosecute all of them. Now, we spoke uh, after uh, that preliminary hearing uh, to the defense lawyer, the man who will represent Vadim Shishimarin, and we asked him whether he believed his client, this 20-year-old, 21-year-old Russian soldier, would get a fair trial. He said that he had faith in the Ukrainian judiciary. The prosecutor had told us earlier that this trial was based on the facts that had been collected by all these international specialized teams, that the trial would be entirely transparent and held according to the standards of Ukrainian justice, that both told us they believed was entirely independent. But Alison, the question that poses itself in this extraordinary trial, again, the first time that I can think of that this has been tried, is the question of the emotion around it. That is going to be one of the challenges, both for the uh, independence of the judiciary, the prosecutors and the defense, because even as the war rages on, emotions, as you'll understand, and it is normal, are extremely raw. And we had an interesting moment when we caught up with the court's uh, translator, who does the translating uh, for Vadim Shishimar, and we asked her uh, whether she, what she felt about being involved. She said, look, uh, I don't feel hatred for him because the tears of Russian mothers are just as salty as our own. Alison. Oh, those are emotional words. Melissa Bell, thank you so much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. The president of the United Arab Emirates, Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed Al Nahyan, has died at the age of 73. Becky Anderson looks at his legacy. When Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed Al Nahyan was born in 1948, the United Arab Emirates didn't even exist as a nation. This was a land where many earned their living by fishing or pearling. But his family was instrumental in transforming this into one of the world's largest oil producers. By the time the UAE, a federation of seven states, was created in 1971, Sheikh Khalifa was the crown prince of the wealthiest state and country's capital, Abu Dhabi. He took over the presidency in 2004 after the death of his father, Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan, the nation's founder. Like his father, he wished to modernize his country, shaping it into a haven of stability in a volatile neighborhood. At home, he invested in the country's armed forces and developed its lucrative energy sector. His success spelled out on Dubai's skyline, 
where one of the tallest buildings in the world, the Burj Khalifa, took on its leader's name after the government bailed Dubai out of its debt woes in 2009. Overseas, he solidified traditional alliances with countries like the UK while boosting trade ties with new partners. Under his leadership, the UAE invested its enormous wealth in globally recognized airlines, prized assets, sporting powerhouses and major global events that have collectively put the country on the map, turning it into a global tourist destination. By the early 2010s, deteriorating health increasingly kept Sheikh Khalifa out of the public limelight. He underwent surgery after suffering a stroke in 2014. But his modernizing vision for the country has carried on under the leadership of his half-brother and Abu Dhabi crown prince, Mohammed bin Zayed. It's taken bold diplomatic steps, such as establishing relations with Israel through the Abraham Accords and hosting the first ever papal visit to the Arabian Peninsula, positioning itself as a tolerant Middle Eastern society all the while delicately balancing relations with Western and non-Western powers alike. It's used its military might to project power, sometimes controversially, in places like Yemen. And it's been diversifying its economy to cut its reliance on oil revenues, investing in renewable and nuclear energy, while taking steps such as allowing for complete foreign ownership of companies and introducing a golden visa program to maintain its position as an attractive destination for foreign investment and talent. It's even entered the space race, becoming the first ever Arab country to send a mission to Mars, aptly named Hope. It is, by all accounts, a country transformed. And that is how Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed al-Nayan leaves it to his successor. North Korea says an outbreak of an explosive COVID outbreak is underway, with six people believed to have died and hundreds of thousands of infections. That's according to state media. Pyongyang calls the situation a major national emergency. It comes one day after the secretive regime reported its first coronavirus case. Straight ahead, more on why Elon Musk says his Twitter takeover is now on hold and stable by name, so why the drama? We look at the so-called stablecoin at the heart of a crypto crash. Welcome back, I'm Allison Kosick. Call it perhaps the pause that refreshes Wall Street. U.S. futures are trading higher. The Nasdaq set to rise for a second straight session. A bit of a better picture here after a volatile week that saw the S&P 500 dip perilously close to bear market levels or a drop of 20 percent. That said, many stocks in the S&P 500 already are sitting in bear territory. We're also closely watching breaking news out of Twitter. As we have been reporting all morning, shares of the social media giant are falling on news that Elon Musk is putting his $44 billion takeover deal for the company temporarily on hold. More on that later in the show. But first, here with this, his take on the broader market action, let's bring in Brian Levitt. He's the global market strategist at Invesco. Brian, thanks for being here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. 
So we are seeing green arrows this morning, but, you know, overall, it's been, uh, you know, just stomach churning all week. How bad is it going to get here? Are we getting close to capitulation here? Is this really a market in the process of putting a bottom on this? Yeah, I mean, we are getting closer. It, you know, it's going to be difficult to pinpoint the exact moment, but we are getting closer. And you talk about capitulation or you think about some of the, the washout in the market. One of the things I look at is the percentage of stocks in the New York Stock Exchange trading above their 200-day moving average. Usually when you're around bottoms, the average is around 15%. We were 50% at the end of March, 5-0. We've come down to 22%. So that's a significant move. Almost 80% of the, of, the, of the market is trading below its 200-day moving average. So that, that's a significant move. We're, we're getting closer. So you're thinking this is an oversold situation? Well, it's a it's an environment in which interest rates went up significantly and when it, it, given the inflationary environment and the bond market's undefeated. Anytime you see interest rates move up like that, you see an equity market valuation adjustment. So, you know, whether or not um, it, it was warranted, it was it was an environment in which when the discount rate changes, equity valuations adjust. Um, we've gone a decent way. Are we oversold? I don't know if we're oversold, but we're moving in that direction. We're we're getting closer to where um, you know that the more of the capitulation has happened and, and a bottom starts to be put in for these markets. So much of the nervousness stems from inflation that is raging in the economy. Do you think that we are are less at peak inflation, or is this just more at a situation of persistent inflation. Um, you know, we we got the latest inflation numbers. They're showing it's slowing a bit. But, you know, does one month really create a trend? <laughs> right. And a tense place and a CPI report for a, a massive economy. Um, but I think what you asked doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. We are likely at peak inflation, but it could still be persistent for some time. And so What's going to end up happening here is that demand's going to slow, driven by the Fed, driven by what's happened with equities, driven by mortgage rates, and the economy's going to moderate, which will start to bring down inflationary pressures. Now, when I say persistent, it's not going to fall to 2% anytime soon, but what the market needs to see, remember, markets don't trade on good or bad. They trade on whether things are better or worse relative to expectations. And so what we need to see in the coming months is that the inflation picture is getting better relative to expectations. If you look in the bond market, if you look at the break-evens, that's what the picture is telling you. The one-year break-even was over 6%. So that's the bond market's expectation for inflation just a couple of weeks ago. I looked yesterday, it was around 46 4.7%. So that's a pretty significant move portending a pretty significant slowdown in the economy. Um, good news, mm. you know, sometimes bad news for the economy could be good news. And mm. so it is likely to moderate from here. Was it a mistake, do you think, for Fed Chair Jay Powell to take 75 basis points or three quarters of a percent of a move higher off the table? And do you think that the Fed could put that back on the table? Well, I think they should front load these uh, rate hikes. Now, far be it for me to tell Jay Powell um, what he's currently doing is a mistake. Um, but I would like to see them front load these moves and, and determine, you know, how's the economy adjusting? For, I mean, look, if you look at where the two-year rate is, a two-year rate that's gone from 20 basis points in October to, what, 2.7 recently, um, that's a bond market that's priced in a lot of this. So, so why don't we get on with it? And the bond market's priced in a lot of it without significant cracks mm -hmm. in the credit market. Uh, the dollars rallied, but not unbelievably. So, yeah, I think we should get on with it. 
I'm curious where you are placing recession odds for next year. Look, I mean, in any year, you're one in 10. And when you've got the yield curve as flat as it is, you you start moving closer to, you know, one in three probability. Um, the three-month tenure is still quite wide, though. And so typically, as this how this plays out is it's not the twos, tens. It's when the Fed uh, flattens the yield curve from three-month to 10-year. And so we'll likely be there by early 2023. History suggests that mm -hmm. you're then 12 to 18 months from a recession, but we're moving quickly here. And, and I think mm -hmm. the hope is, my hope is that inflation moderates, Fed backs off, um, and the cycle mm -hmm. can continue. All right, Brian Levitt, thanks for uh, your time today. Thanks for your perspective. My pleasure, thank you. And the market open is next. <laughs> Welcome back, I'm Allison Kosick. The opening bell there sounding on Wall Street and nothing to fear just yet on this Friday the 13th. U.S. stocks are trading higher across the board. The second day of gains for the Nasdaq, but tech still down substantially this week. And the Dow remains on track for its seventh straight week of losses, its longest losing streak in decades. Meantime, shares of Twitter opening sharply lower after Elon Musk's series of tweets earlier today. Musk saying he remains committed to taking Twitter private. He is, however, putting his $44 billion deal for the company on hold. Let's talk more about this. I want to bring in Paul LaMonica. I, you've been tweeting about this all morning, a little sarcasm here and there. How can you not? I mean, Elon Musk is negotiating this deal for Twitter on Twitter and causing such chaos with the stocks. Uh, at this point, do you think that he's losing credibility with investors because of everything that he's doing to these companies on Wall Street? I, I don't think it's helping, Allison, definitely. I mean, it's it's hard to say that Elon Musk can ever truly lose all credibility because he is the world's richest person. He obviously controls Tesla and SpaceX. He has done a lot in the automotive and, uh, you know, uh, world of space exploration to really still make him an icon in the world of business. That being said, this behavior on Twitter is erratic, to put it mildly. And I think investors clearly are losing confidence. Is this a negotiating ploy? I wrote earlier this week about how some people think Musk would need to lower the takeover price for Twitter in order to get a deal done that makes economic sense. Or is uh, you know, Musk growing bored and going to try and find something else to uh, focus his attentions on as it becomes a little bit uh, more challenging for him to pull off this uh, Twitter deal, especially if he is questioning some of the uh, user uh, data metrics? Yeah, I mean, it, he could be entertaining himself with the tweets about straws, of course, which he was the buildup before he got to the tweet about the deal on hold. Um, and I mentioned companies because, you know, as we're watching Twitter shares fall, we were watching Tesla shares go up. And so it feels just like it's manipulation here. And you wonder where the SEC is in all this. When are regulators going to step in and or at least say something? Yeah, the SEC obviously has cracked down on Musk before, Allison, for some of his tweets, probably the uh, most famous one being the uh, funding secured when funding wasn't apparently actually secured for uh, you know a, a deal that he was talking about to maybe take Tesla uh, private. 
I think that regulators uh, are probably trying to do the best they can to keep an eye on this ongoing developing situation. But Musk tweets so often that it is hard for anyone in the SEC, let alone the financial media, to stay on top of every single utterance from Elon Musk and what's going to be happening next and what his true motivations might be. Yeah, but it would be nice to hear something. And maybe this time, just this time, we will. Paula Monica, thanks so much for your perspective on this. Bitcoin has bounced back above $30,000 today after a sharp sell-off on Thursday, but that doesn't tell the whole story on cryptocurrencies. The big focus this week is on stablecoin and the collapse in the value of OneCoin, TerraUSD. They may not be the biggest name among investors, but stablecoins are big money. Their total value was $180 billion in March. Stablecoins, as the name suggests, were designed to offer a stable way to enter the cryptocurrency world. Contrasting with currencies like Bitcoin, whose values undergo wild swings. Some stablecoins are pegged in the value to real-world assets or currencies, the peg being maintained by reserves of their real assets, such as U.S. dollars. But a more obscure type of coin, known as algorithmic Stablecoins are meant to maintain a steady value through complex financial engineering. TerraUSD was tied to a crypto coin called Luna. Traders were able to exchange Terra and Luna coins to forever maintain a value of one Terra to one dollar. But this week, that arrangement fell apart, the value of Terra collapsing to 23 cents at one point, wiping out billions of dollars off investors' accounts. Joining us now is Charles Cascarilla. He's the CEO and co-founder of Paxos. It's a finance and tech company that specializes in blockchain. Charles Cascarilla, welcome to the show. And, and I'm so glad to have you on and get your perspective. The burning question that so many are asking is, does anyone really know yet what happened to set this into motion to cause Terra to lose its peg to the U.S. dollar? Uh, great to be on, Allison. Uh, you know, the answer is uh, we don't know exactly why it happened, but... The reality is it wasn't backed by anything. So it was only a matter of time until this would happen. Um, why was it today versus you know tomorrow or three, uh, three weeks ago? It's, we can't really get to that. But what we can think about is what is a way to really construct a stable coin? Ultimately, a stable coin is supposed to be, as you were saying, something that's backed by an underlying asset. And really, when you want a digital dollar, why does someone want a digital dollar? They want a dollar that can move 24-7 instantaneously anywhere in the world. And they want it to be a dollar. And so in order to be a dollar, you have to be backed by dollars, which is basically T-bills. In this case, you were just backed by an algorithm. And, you know, at some point, the algorithm can't work because it's just based on faith. How much is what's happening with, um, with Terra, with Luna, and, and in some case, in a little bit Tether, although it's come back today, how much is that sort of casting a cloud over cryptocurrencies overall? We did see, of course, Bitcoin taking a big hit. It's bouncing back as well. But how much is what's happening in the algorithmic stablecoin area affecting cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrencies' credibility? Yeah, well, I mean, the reality is it is hurting. Um, you know, $22 billion loss uh, in total value in just a matter of days is a big, it's a big hit. On the other hand, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, this technology is fundamentally transformative. Our financial system needs to be um, really reformed and, and shifted so that it can operate at the speed of the internet. And it's not doing that today. It runs nine to five and it runs in batch processes. It takes days to move things. That's not uh, what we want either. 
So um, I think it's important to keep in mind the fundamentals that this is really going to transform how our economy works. But there's going to be some bumps along the road. Uh, you don't want it. Periods of creative destruction can be healthy. But even in the Internet, you had Amazon go from $100 down to $2. It's one of the most iconic companies in the world right now. And, uh, you know, you had Pets.com that didn't change the value of the Internet. We had algorithmic stable coins. It's an unfortunate situation for sure, but it doesn't change the long term of what this technology represents. Yeah, how much do stable coins really, um, how, much, how important are they for the crypto ecosystem as a whole? Well, they're very important because you need dollars in the system in order to move it around. Interestingly, even though everyone talks about cryptocurrencies, I can tell you that what the number one product people want around the world is the U.S. dollar. And um, the thing is, uh, people want real dollars. They want to know that they're going to really be there for them. And so in the case of Paxos, we issue um, two different stable coins. Uh, one is called USDP. The other is BUSD. And I think there's some really fundamental differences in how we have built our products in order to serve this really important need for how can you move dollars at the speed of the Internet? And mm -hmm. there's really a couple things that differentiate us. The first is, are you fully reserved? Are you fully backed by T-bills, not by even U.S. government bonds that can fluctuate in value or commercial paper or mortgage-backed securities? How can you be truly a dollar at any moment in time? And that is a promise that we absolutely make to all of our customers. The second thing is you don't have to believe Paxos because we're fully regulated. We're the only uh, firm that is issuing a regulated stablecoin. We have a primary regulator, the New York Department of Financial Services, one of the best financial regulators in the whole world. So you don't have to believe Paxos. Hmm. You can understand that we have oversight and no one else does. And I think the last thing is it, it's undisputably the safest stablecoins in the world are Paxos stablecoins. Nothing that what happened with Luna can happen to a Paxos stablecoin. That's because we constructed a certain way. We have oversight. And so there can be real confidence to use this product. And it really is transformative for the world. You know, Janet Yellen called stablecoins a threat to financial stability, and she wants regulation. Is Yellen wrong? No, I think she's right that you need to have regulation. And if it's built incorrectly, you can have instability. That's what we saw with Luna Terra. 100%, I think she's making an accurate point. It's one that we really support. That's why we alone have built this regulated stablecoin suite of products that is so much different from what others have done. Because the idea is you should be able to have a dollar that moves like the Internet but you should have a dollar that you can believe in and trust. How do you marry those two concepts together? In our view, mm -hmm. it's by being regulated, by having oversight, by not just having to believe Paxos, but by knowing that there are other people who are making sure that what we say is actually what we're doing. All right, Charles Cascarilla, CEO and co-founder of Paxos. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. And from digital currencies to the power of tech in the real world. We'll speak to the company using drones to get life-saving supplies to people in Ukraine. Modern day tech to help people affected by modern day warfare. That's the mission of drone company Dragonfly, which is teaming up with a medical devices supplier to get crucial equipment to people in Ukraine. It could be a lifeline for people in hard to reach areas. The drones can carry up to 35 pounds of temperature controlled items like insulin, blood, vaccines, and first aid kits. And they can also enable vital search and rescue operations. Cameron Chell is Dragonfly's CEO and joins us now. Cameron, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Talk us through how many of your drones have already been in Ukraine and how many more are going and what they're doing there. 
So the first shipment of drones arrived late last week where we completed our training uh, and mission profiles uh, with the pilots that are on the ground there. There's up to 200 drones that will be delivered before the end of summer. Uh, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 18 that are either in theater or on their way to theater currently. And talk to me about what, what they're carrying. Um, I understand, obviously they're ca carrying medical supplies, but um, are they ca carrying other, other supplies as well? And what about search and rescue? What kind of role are they playing there? Yeah, there's three primary drones that we're actually putting into the area. The uh, the first or, or the most prevalent drone is what we call the MRD, the medical response drone. So this is a unique drone that Dragonfly has developed that carries this 35 pounds of temperature sensitive uh, supplies into uh, besieged areas primarily at the moment. The biggest uh, call that is required is for insulin and antibiotics. People that are uh, obviously diabetic and you know can't get access to insulin or those many of which are injured and, uh, and are facing risk of infection. Uh, but there are even calls for things as simple as just getting water into certain places. So uh, that's the primary function. These are drones that can operate from up to 20 kilometers Kilometers away, uh, so it keeps the operators at a safe distance. Uh, they have full optics; they can see everything that's going on. Uh, the drones can either land and the uh, packages can be removed, or they can be dropped from a safe distance as well. And and uh, and the drone can get out of theater quite quickly. Um, the, there's also a, sorry. Uh, no, no. Finish your thought. Finish your thought. Well, there's also a search and rescue drone, which is a smaller drone, which is very very fast and carries thermal uh, um, sensors. Uh, which are used primarily to look for people that are in debris situations to save time. They're looking for heat signatures. Uh, some of our technology can even read the vital signs uh, of people that might be in those situations. And then we have, we have a third drone that flies at a very high altitude. It's a vertical takeoff horizontal flight drone that really provides uh, situational awareness and reconnaissance for the search and rescue teams to ensure that there's not danger coming in from outside areas as they're doing uh, search and rescue missions. You know, clearly these drones are going in where it's dangerous territory. And in your earnings call, you talked about how this is not just a feat of engineering, but it's also, you know, you have to tackle logistics and training, too. How do you keep these drones safe to get to where they need to go to bring these vital supplies yeah, and do the vital work? You raise such a good point. Uh, you know, the engineering and, and the work and the project management all combined to be able to provide a platform that can uh, ensure that there's some humanitarian aid getting into this area and saving lives. The, the, the pure logistics of getting the equipment in, uh, in a regulated manner, in a manner that everybody knows that it's safe, they know that these aren't combatant type uh, of drones and such, and then doing the training of the personnel, uh, are uh, it, it, it's, it's a big, big lift. The engineering just seems uh, almost uh, pale by comparison sometimes. However, that being said, that's a, it's a really important part of the overall mission profile and something that Dragonfly is really specialized in. Um, you know, in terms of keeping these drones safe, uh, the reality is uh, right now, uh, you know, get, getting ambulances or, or equipment into these areas just isn't possible. They either get shot, they get confiscated, they can't get through uh, debris or such. And so you bring these drones in from a safe distance. And uh, we've had a lot of questions and people saying, what if they get shot down or what if they get destroyed? But, you know, who cares? is send more like the reality is these drones uh, cost a fraction of the cost of the ordinance that are used to destroy these areas or these buildings and so you know if a drone gets shot down we'll send five more i mean that's just the beauty of this technology how it scales and and really the, re the return on investment of saving lives is just is just uh, is just so incredible for this you know for for what we're able to provide 
are these dra are these drones collecting data? Uh, these 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 drones are are not. Uh, they they certainly could collect data, uh, and they are providing us optical awareness uh, and situational awareness of the uh, of the environment. So it enables us to be able to get the equipment to where it needs to uh, go. Uh, but these these drones are designed for humanitarian requirements. All right. Well, it's incredible what these drones are doing. It's such a pleasure to have you on on the show today, Cameron Chell, CEO of Dragonfly Drones. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. Nearly three dozen German shepherds have been rescued from the war in Ukraine. According to our CNN affiliate KFMB, a California trainer traveled alone to Ukraine to rescue the dogs, which are police and military trained canines. Uh, Chris Jimenez raised around $55,000 to charter a plane and bring them all to San Diego County. Now the dogs need to go through some extensive rehab. Uh, they've been you know, shoved in a car for hours, shoved on a plane. They, they were in bad condition when I showed up. Jimenez is trying to find homes for the dogs, but says they must be the right fit. Leaving Shanghai's oppressive COVID-19 lockdown, CNN's David Culver was sealed inside his home for 50 days. Next, he takes us on his one-way journey out of China. China now banning citizens from going overseas for non-essential reasons. It's part of the regime's controversial zero-COVID policy, with much of the city of Shanghai still under a severe lockdown. CNN's David Culver has just left China for the first time in two and a half years. Here's his story. Fatigue, frustration, you can't go outside that door, the huge issue. And tired, Juliet. Here we are, morning of leaving Shanghai uh, in the midst of what's been now 50 days in lockdown. Leaving Shanghai today is a one-time, one-way journey. Heading out for the first time since mid-March, it all feels so strange. The few people you see out and about, most of them are head to toe in hazmat suits. As you look on the streets, the ropes are still blocking off a lot of the sidewalks, stores, basically all closed. With a government-permitted driver, we pass through checkpoints, our documents thoroughly inspected, including a letter from the American Embassy. Many expats like me needing diplomatic letters just to leave our apartments. Once vibrant and rich with energy, Shanghai was forced into an induced coma. The rolling lockdowns began in mid-March, but by April, this city of more than 25 million people was under strict, harsh lockdown, most of us sealed inside our homes. Community COVID tests after test after test, and in between, at-home COVID tests. I've done quite a few of these. Early into the lockdown, I packed a go bag for me and for my dog. If I tested positive, I'd likely end up in a government isolation center like this, or worse like this. Most of us would prefer just to recover in the privacy of our home. But in China's zero COVID world, that is not an option. Shocking scenes of people shouting, we are starving, we are starving. Heartbreaking stories of people being rejected medical care, some of them later dying. All because hospital workers feared breaking unforgiving zero COVID protocols. Witnessing Shanghai's handling or mishandling reminded me of Wuhan. On January 21st, 2020, we traveled into the then epicenter of what was a mystery illness. It's the wildlife and seafood market. 
Still fresh in our minds, the perseverance of those in Wuhan who lived through the original lockdown. Some losing loved ones to COVID early on. Just give them a second. They risked their freedom to share with us their pain-filled stories, furious with their government for not doing more to stop the initial spread. Chinese officials maintain they were transparent from the start. And in recent days, President Xi Jinping has reaffirmed and praised his country's zero-COVID efforts, vowing to fight any doubters and critics. Over the past two years, we've lived through China's military-like mobilization, rapidly building hospitals, mastering mass testing of tens of millions at one time, designing a sophisticated contact tracing system, likely to be kept and used to watch over every move of 1.4 billion Chinese long after COVID, and also essentially sealing off their borders to the outside world. Sure, mic check one, two, three. Wanting to keep on the story? I've not left China since 2019, making this departure a long overdue homecoming visit. Shanghai's Pudong International Airport, once among the busiest in the world, is now a lonely experience. Only two international flights slated to leave on this day. On the floor, sleeping bags and trash, where stranded travelers have camped out. They wait here for days or weeks for a flight out. Outside on the tarmac, strict COVID protocols and sanitation in place. Ground crews spraying each other with disinfectant. The weeks of built-up anxiety-induced adrenaline begin to ease. Boarding the near-empty plane, it finally starts to feel real. About to take off. The disorder, despair, the chaos, the anger... The exhaustion, all of it feels so distant now. With a sigh of relief and a bit of survivor's guilt, leaving behind a country amidst almost unprecedented changes, I wonder if China's tightening zero-COVID restrictions, coupled with rising tensions with the West, will keep its shuttered doors from ever reopening. David Culver, CNN, back home. Such a good story in the first person. That's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Connect the World is next. I'll see you soon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.